Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Today, we want to take a look at our big picture macro uh, technology future. Uh, conventional wisdom as to how technology will change the future goes something like this. There's one group that believes in a, a new normal, which is where ordering a ride or a, a food, a smartphone, or trading in bitcoins is about as it's going to get. And that's roughly where we are today. Others, the dark side, see a dystopian future where because of artificial intelligence, we'll see widespread, digitally-driven job and business destruction. And then there's a third group, which seems to be much in the headlines today, that believes the only technological revolution that will matter will be found with renewable energy and uh, electric cars. Uh, but according to Mark Finnells, my returning guest, friend, and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and who specializes on science, technology, energy, and future manufacturing technologies, these views are wrong, or at least incomplete. Uh, Mark's new book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s, outlines how, if the political class and the regulatory state will simply get out of the way, we'll see a convergence of technologies that will instead drive a broad economic boom over the coming decade and one that history may come to know as the Roaring 2020s. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Uh, you've written a big, important book that sets forth a much more optimistic view <laughs> of the future than, than most of us are feeling right now. Um, you know, yeah. But there are a lot of roadblocks. Yeah. Like right now, today, we've got this obsessive focus on climate change, uh, so-called renewable wind and solar energy, yeah. environmental justice, electric cars, and the batteries that electric cars need. Um, but when you know the economic and physical realities, you know, these seem like madness. Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> first, well, first, before we get into that, though, I did want to tee it up because I do want people to know we do want to talk about what's going on right now. Yeah. What's the thesis of your book? Well, that's, that's the, 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 to cut the chase, the thesis of the book is that the future that, in fact, is exciting, to uh, use a phrase, has already happened. That is, making predictions about technology is in, in terms of what it will do to society, what we, how we can live our lives, impacts on all, all manner of daily uh, commerce, don't come from in, things that are invented now. They comes from things that are invented in the recent past, 10, 20 years ago, and are just now reaching maturity, being viable and useful. This has always been true. It's obvious when you state it. The car was invented in the late 19th century. Uh, the auto age really took off in the 1920s. People went from a few percent owning cars to half of homes. <clears throat> the radio was invented long before the 1920s, but there was no, and the idea of the radio had been around since, uh, you know, it's for two, more than two decades before the 1920s. But the radio as a product took off in the 1920s. And, and same with electrification, same with, bio, pharma, with pharmaceuticals, you know, polymers and plastics, all these things, back in the 1920s. It's a long way of saying that we, we are now 
living at a time where we have a, we have had a, we are seeing similar profound revolutions in the three sort of domains how about all technologies operate. And the three domains of technologies are information, what we know about things, how we share information, uh, machines, how we make everything and operate everything, do stuff. Every every service requires a machine, and materials. Everything is built from something. Those are the everything in the civilization falls in those three buckets. If you get revolutions in the products and the underlying technologies in any one of those, it's a big deal. Computers fall in the information domain. It's a big deal. Computers are different than anything human beings have had for a long time. But when you have contemporaneous convergence of revolutions in all three domains, which is what's going on now. And we're going to show a chart on that. that. It's, you've got the it, three Venn diagrams it, when the three circles exactly. overlap. Exactly. Hap what happens in the middle? Well, you get this. You get what uh, Joel Moikure <laughs> stole a word from physics. Joel Moikure is the Nobel class economist at Northwestern. He calls it the phase change in an economy. And of course, if you remember your high school, uh, your high school physics or chemistry, <laughs> a phase change is when water becomes ice or water becomes a vapor. It's still water. It's still the same molecule, but a phase change is profoundly different. The same components result in something profoundly different. You get phase changes in economies when you have profoundly different convergence of, of the conditions of the technologies that allow things. So the book is optimistic in this sense based on what's actually happening in the technology domains broadly, not just in energy, not just in computing, but in the three big spheres of materials and machines and information. It's optimistic because those are the facts, not because I'm an inveterate optimist. Give, give me an example of that. You, in the book, you used the, uh, the iPhone, yep. and you said that was a conversion of these three uh, elements. Describe that. So if you think about the iPhone, this is a magic machine. I mean, this, we know that Steve Jobs gets credit, right, for pushing the first iPhone, the first smartphone that succeeded in 2007. There were smartphones before that. They were lousy. I mean, they were handheld computers. They were just, there was the Newton, there was the Palm Pilot. There were lots of things for those who remember their long-ago oh, history. Palm Pilots with little <laughs> stylus? Yeah. That was convenient. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's still a stylus. It can be useful, but it's not exactly convenient. Exactly. Okay. But what, what happened was that the, you needed three things that to, to happen. You needed a maturation of three kinds of technologies to make you know, a smartphone possible. You needed microprocessors to be small and cheap, and powerful enough to make a microprocessor class radio and a microprocessor class logic chip. But the microprocessor revolution had nothing to do with Apple. They didn't invent the microprocessor. But it matured to a point where it was really small, very efficient. You also needed uh, little tiny flat screen, screen TVs. The LCD screen was not invented by Apple, and it was a contemporaneous, completely unrelated invention in terms of the, uh, the realm of computing. It's a material science invention, in fact, and that came along and matured. And you needed power. You needed a battery. You needed a lithium battery, in fact. There'd be no smartphones if you're using automobile-class lead-acid batteries. It would look bigger than the, the, the goofy brick in that and movie we're going to talk Street. some more later about batteries. <laughs> yeah, well, but the lithium battery was magical. It, 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 with the other two revolutions, in maturation of capacity to make the technologies at scale, a lot of innovator like Steve Jobs, like Apple, to say, I can assemble these, these disparate components into something that's really remarkable. This is, this is, by the way, the pattern of revolutions in technology through all of history. That's how the car came to be. Henry Ford did not invent high-strain steel or there, the rubber. The three elements of that were the materials were the, was the steel. Li li liquid, no, the, the materials are the liquid crystal display, the flat screen. No, I mean, and I've got the 
phone. Oh, the car. Let's do the car. Let's do the Model sure. T. So if you think about the car, you, somebody had to invent the idea of a combustion engine. Ford didn't do that. And they had to get good enough <clears> and sophisticated <throat> enough and cheap enough that it, you could mass produce it. You could apply the idea of mass production to it. It couldn't be a craft production. You needed to have high-strength steels to do this, the alloy class of metals, which didn't exist in, in, throughout history. We had alloys, but they weren't like high-strength steels. And you needed a, uh, an industry that could produce a fuel, oil, gasoline, diesel fuel. That was an entirely independent magist you know, magisteria of technology and invention. All of them matured roughly contemporaneously. Same is true, by the way, of, uh, of the... Uh, Electric age, right? We had to have, uh, again, three different things take place, not just one. <clears throat> what about the radio? I, mean, I, I worked, say, yeah. for, Bill, I worked yeah. for Bill Paley at CBS. What, what, were the, what was the convergence that created radio? Well, somebody had to invent the vacuum tube, for starters. So DeForest Kelly had nothing to do with RCA. RCA brought the first radios into the world. In the 1920s, if you owned stock in RCA in the early 1920s and held it, say, for six years, you got out before the crash of 29, but you didn't have to hold it for all nine years. You saw more than a 10,000% increase in the stock value of, of what you held in RCA. Mm -hmm. And the velocity of the introduction of the radio equaled or exceeded the velocity of the introduction of the smartphone. Big deal. And radios, by the way, at 1920s, cost as much as the entire budget for furniture for the average household in America in the 1920s. So the fact that they took off told you that people wanted that product. So radios would have been as much as 5 or 10 or 15% of household income then? Yes, okay. of the middle-class household income. Just, just, by the way, as is our budget for communications today, when you look at the all-in spending by people on their uh, communications budget, you know, it's cable TV, their smartphone, and the like. But back to the radio. So you need a vacuum tube. You needed the, you needed the idea of, right, of what a radio wave was. This, the information revolution was was the discovery of electromagnetic waves, what, what, what they were, how they could be, how they could be manipulated. They were in, an invisible phenomenon unknown in history part of that. So you had information, you had the vacuum tube, and again, you needed a, a, separate, a separate infrastructure. You needed power. You needed electric power that was available, reliable, and without all three simultaneously, all, all came out of different domains, different spheres, different inventors and all reached the level of maturity sufficient to do something that RCA did, which is build a practical home radio. And you show this time after time after time in right. your book. There are lots of examples. What's an example of what you see converging today? Well, that's, that's a good question. So you know, why would I be optimistic? Let's just do robots, because everybody is dystopian, has a dystopian feeling about robots. Yeah. Most things that, that, that we have, people have imagined but couldn't build. Right? The idea of an anthropomorphic robot. Let's set aside what you would do with a robot that could uh, walk and, and assist in a, in a task. Uh, making, making robots useful requires uh, revolutions in three domains again. You need information processing capabilities unprecedented in history. By that, I mean billions of times more powerful than existed at the dawn of the computing age in the 70s and 80s. But for that, you couldn't make a, a robot walk because you, it's not like you're emulating a human, but you're emulating ambulation, which is not easy. You also need uh, materials revolution. The class of materials for which you can build a robot have to sort of emulate biology. You have to have lightweight, high-strength materials. It's not, not so easy. And then you need actuators, yeah, back to power. You need motors and batteries at a level of cost and precision and power that again, unprecedented history. They had to mature to a level where you could build a machine that had the processing power, the 
energy slash power and the mechanical strength to emulate, let's say, a dog. So when you look at um, Boston Dynamics robot called Spot, which some people may have seen. If you haven't, you, you use the magic Google Spot, machine. Spot's pretty comical. Pretty, pretty funny to watch it, right? But when you think about it, if you watch the video, it's eerily um, biologically Spot's natural. Spot's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. on YouTube. You can find it. Even find this show. Even, even this show. And you look at it and say, well, this is, this is sort of eerie. Now, here's, here's an interesting factoid for you. Here's Spot. It's the first commercially available quasi. When I say anthropomorphic, it's obviously... There must be a word for dogomorphic or something. It's not obviously, it looks like a human, it looks like a dog. But it walks naturally like an, like an animal. Uh, you can lease it. So Boston Dynamics, uh, based on public information, it sells, sells the robot for about $70,000. Sounds like a lot of money. But in real dollar terms, the very first cars, in fact, the first car in America was a Dorea wagon, uh, was considered revolutionary there, little, very late 1800s. It cost about $70,000 in today's dollars to buy a derailleur wagon. Not many people bought them. They, they made a bunch. And it was not very many years later that we got the Model T, then the Model A. We are at There are also no roads then. There were, well, you had to build infrastructure roads yeah, yeah. to make the cars useful. We will do the same for robots. The infrastructure for robots won't be physical roads. The nice thing about a robot is that it can operate in the environment we're in if it's a walking robot. That's a magical transformation in terms of utility. If you can have an automated machine do things that help you in the environment you want to naturally be in versus building a specific infrastructure or cages where you park robots so they don't hurt people. This is the Bill Walton Show, and you can find us on the BillWaltonShow.com and all the major pod podcast platforms. I'm here with Mark Mills, Senior Fellow at Manhattan Institute, and we're talking about... Uh, how technological change happens and how it's convergence of three elements and, and uh, maybe what our future with robots might look like. <laughs> uh, I want to go deeper into this, but at first I, I mentioned at the outset there's, there's this obsession now with, with climate change, yeah. with solar, wind, energy, and batteries. Yeah. And you've written at length and I think with great uh, clarity on why... Um, what a world with 100% wind and solar would look like and the environmental mm -hmm. cost that that would right. impose and the economic cost. Do you want to lay out the, uh, the realities <laughs> here? Well, you know, uh, there won't be a world uh, powered entirely by wind and solar and batteries. The, the reason I say that is because it, it's not possible. We don't have the materials and we can't afford it in either environmental or economic terms. And I, let, me, let, me, let me explain why, but Sort of a calibration point first. Uh, it, imagine it's um, early 1900s, and, and, and you have entrepreneurs who are very excited about changing the kind of food they use for horses. And then you've got another group of entrepreneurs who have started to make automobiles that are turned into tractors and turned into trucks and ways to transport people. So we have one group that's changing what they feed the horse and buggy and the other group that's inventing the car. Today we have a lot of enthusiasts who are changing what we feed the horse and buggy. The different fuel for a car leaves it still a car. It's not a revolution. It's important. It's consequential when you change what you feed the car, but it's still a car. So it's economic value, it's economic utility, it's productivity impacts are exactly the same. There's no change in what the economists call the utility function. So it's a misdirected view of what a revolution constitutes. Flying cars would be a revolution, and they're not possible. We make flying drones. Flying cars will be harder. 
But drones that carry cargoes are already being used that are autonomous. That's a revolution, much more so than changing the fuel. When I say it won't happen, it, it's, it's easy to explain why. Uh, to produce the same unit of energy delivered to society, whether it's a propelling a mile, carrying a pound of something, making a pound of something, making steel or making silicon, right? Wh whatever the, the ultimate goal is, you always have to use energy. If you use hydrocarbons, oil, gas, and coal, and you switch to wind, solar, and batteries, the quantity of materials required to be extracted from the earth to produce the same unit of energy goes up a thousand percent. So I'll say that again, right? If, we, if I want to get the same mile driven, I have to mine stuff, build stuff. You always have to do that. Everything, is, everything starts with mining. Well, let's, let's, let's break it down into something more we can visualize, like a solar panel. Let's do a wind farm. A wind farm produces X amount of energy and, and requires what to, to create. And well, how much wind do we need to replace fossils? Let, let, let me, let's, do the, let's do an easy, easy, if I can, an easier one. I car. like easy. The car. Okay. Because everybody's excited about electric cars. States and countries all over the uh, planet are pro <clears throat> promising to ban internal combustion engines because we, have now, like, we now have electric cars, or we, more accurately, we have Teslas. You know, more than uh, two-thirds of all electric car sales in the United States are Teslas, just to be clear. So he utterly dominates, and good for him, <laughs> the electric car market. But everybody else is making electric cars. So the battery in an electric car weighs about 1,000 pounds. Right? That's 1,000. Most people don't know that. The 1,000-pound battery is replacing a 70-pound. And that's the total weight of the car is what? The battery only, just the battery. And so the total weight of the car is what, 8,000 pounds? Oh, no, a car... Depends on the car, 2,000 to 3,000 pounds. So half the, two so, third, you know, third of the weight. A half, half the, the weight, weight of a car is the battery if it's an electric car. Okay. And the fuel to, the weight of the <clears> fuel <throat> to go the same distance in an internal combustion engine car is about 60 pounds. So I have a 60-pound fuel tank I'm replacing with a 1,000-pound fuel tank. Now, that's not nothing because it means that, uh, obviously, I have to use lightweight materials to make up for some of that weight. I'm using aluminum, carbon fiber, all of which are energy intensive. But let's just stick with the battery. To make the 1,000-pound battery, to fabricate it, I have to mine and dig up somewhere on the earth 500,000 pounds of materials, 500,000 pounds for one car to make the nickel, the copper, the manganese, the, li the lithium, the lithium carbonates. All of, the, all of that requires mining equipment and mining machinery, almost all of which is oil-fired. It requires transport to refining facilities, most of which, by the way, are in Asia and China where energy, in that case, both coal and oil and gas are used to convert it into a chemical that's useful to make a battery. And then, then you make a battery, use energy to make the battery. So when you go through that whole process, you've now made something to store energy, doesn't produce energy, and to make a battery that could hold a, the energy equivalent of a barrel of oil. So I'll make enough batteries that they could hold the energy equivalent of a barrel of oil. I'll have had to expend between 100 and 300 barrels of oil equivalent of energy to fabricate that battery. And since that is typically done all over the world in mines and processes in China, Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, that means somewhere else energy is being consumed and carbon dioxide is being emitted. Put, put in the carbon terms, which is why the preoccupation with switching from internal combustion to electric cars is sort of resonant. When the electric car shows up in your driveway, it comes with like a carbon debt just to make it. And the debt can be measured in tons of carbon dioxide. Depending on where you drive that car and how the battery was made, you may never pay the debt off compared to, not, to, compared to avoiding the carbon dioxide emissions from burning gasoline. 
this is not uh, you know an anti-EV observation. This is just locked into the physics and the chemistry of these these machines. A lot of this is going to be manufactured in China. Right now, and China, China the, gets yeah, about eighty yeah. percent of its energy from coal. Sixty percent of the electricity from coal, uh, right? And they get uh, like all like the rest of the world. Uh, hydrocarbons account for about 80, 85% of all energy. That's so that's where level. the hybrid, that's where the debt is incurred. Right, but right. also you talk about the mining required. And mining is not going to happen in the United States. We've got a not, yep. not in my backyard mentality yep. with mining. So we, we outsource it. We, we shove it off to uh, Africa or South America where you can find this. And the place you find it would be I don't know, rainforests, uh, sure. environmentally. Fra fragile, uh, fragile areas. and Yeah, exactly. So here, but there's an economic and geopolitical the, the, feature. The tundra in, right. the, in, the, in the North Pole. That's right, son. The, the, well, here's last year. So all these places we yeah. want to protect is yeah. where you'd go to mine the well, materials to do the electric cars. And we, and, we, and we do that. We do that by virtue of pushing out mining possibilities in North America, especially in the United States. So this is an elite pushing all of these problems out to the third world. Sure. Exactly, and gee, that's a great idea. It's a good idea. Uh, think about it. <laughs> we don't. We don't. If you're in Davos, maybe. <laughs> well, I think to be fair, and I and it's hard to be fair because uh, because some of the ideas <laughs> they're not are, fair. Because <laughs> exactly, some of the ideas are so insane. To be fair, a lot of people have no idea how stuff is made. They just have no idea. They don't know that an electric car uses 300 percent more copper than a, a regular car. So what that means is if you increase electric car use and the solar panel use and wind turbine use, all of which use more copper in the conventional generation, you increase demand for copper, okay? You, whatever, well, where do we get the copper? Who mines the copper? Well, one of the biggest copper mines in the world is in Chile. Uh, Chile is a place that, that just had an election, and for the first time, I think in 40 years, now has a socialist leader who is- It's um, been a wonderful economy, and now they just voted in a 35-year-old who wants to take it back to the dark ages. So let's see how the copper mine does in that environment, Yeah. Big, and how- how the price of copper, which is already trending up because of the demands on copper, it takes uh, decades to open new new mines. They don't open up in, in a few years. Even in environments in places where they give you permits quickly, it takes uh, more than a decade to open a new mine. So we are we are pushing an energy path that increases the call on minerals like nickel, like steel, like copper, like of course cobalt, manganese, lithium in particular. That increases demand for those materials by. 400% to 4,000%. And nowhere in the world is anybody planning to increase our ability to mine by that amount of demand. So we are going to face uh, an inevitable, to use the, uh, the French phrase, the denouement. <laughs> we'll get to a point very quickly, within a year or two, where the supply of the minerals are not sufficient to meet the aspirations to build that many batteries and solar and wind farms. So you have a chart in the appendix of your book, yeah. and you, you save the best for last, <laughs> in my view. And I was going to put it at the end of the show, but I want to do it right now yeah. because it bears on what you just said. Yeah. It's called Paradigms for Forecast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and we'll, we'll put it up so everybody can see what we're talking about. But it's uh, basically the less you know, well, I'll let you describe it. This is this is your chart. Yes, yeah, the famous uh, Dunning Kruger uh, okay. piece of uh, psychology research done some years ago, about twenty, I think twenty five years ago. It's a piece of a serious clinical research. But if you were being a wag uh, to to your point and looking at the results of the clinical research, it would say the less you know, the more confident you are, <laughs> or you're too stupid to know you're stupid. I guess would be <laughs> to be unkind. 
It, as I was a very interesting piece of, of research. So when, when people learn a little bit about something, they feel they, they suddenly learn something and they feel very confident in what that information means, whether it's medical information, whether it's about energy, whether it's about <clears throat> sociology. So they looked across all domains. And, but then what they learned is that as people learned more, their confidence dropped precipitously. The more they learned, the less confident they were that they knew the answer to something, or they the less confident they were in, under, in, in what they self-expressed as, I understand this domain. And again, it didn't matter whether it was in physics or in engineering or whether it was in psychology or in finance. And then as they learned more, so the curve has this interesting shape, as they learned yet more, their confidence started to rise. They began to have enough understanding to know that there was a reason to be able to reach a, a conclusion that was reasonably accurate. But they never reached the same level of confidence that they had <laughs> when they knew a little bit. So it's, it's a version of that adage, you know, he who knows not, he knows not. Uh, you know, the Chinese proverb, you know, yeah. teach him. Uh, he, he knows not, he knows not, is a fool, shun him. So in, it's reasonable to, to be worried that you don't know enough. And you, in every researcher knows this, any analyst, any student knows this, is you, the more you study, you do get to a point, it's kind of like a, an epiphany when you realize you've done enough digging, you've done enough studying that you begin to see patterns, you begin to understand what might be true. This is what education's about. It's what we do, whether it's self-educated or in schools. But the Dunning-Kruger curve is um, delicious because they, uh, <laughs> they did it sort of clinically and analytically and then generated this, this, this curve, which is uh, years after it became sort of infamous. <laughs> well, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Mark Mills, who's the author of a terrific book, The Cloud Revolution, which we're going to get to in just a minute. <laughs> and we're talking about how when you know a little, you think you know a lot. <laughs> That's right. And when you know something, you realize you don't know much, but only after lots of years of work and study, you have actually really gained some clarity. And I think most of us are operating kind of in the middle of your curve here. Yeah, we are. I know I am. Um, I seem to know a little about a lot of things, but not enough about any one thing. Uh, I want to stick with the illustration, though, with the solar and wind. Just I know we did cars and batteries but you described last time you were here about the enormous footprint that right, solar and right. wind would have on the planet. Yep. And so you you create a renewable, supposedly, that's not, it's a form of electricity, a form of energy you can't store very readily, so it mm. gets back to our battery issue. Right. But what are the, what's the footprint and the cost of solar and sure. wind, just, just briefly, a couple minutes? The easiest way to visualize it would be if you wanted to make uh, a, 100 megawatts of electricity, 100 megawatt power plant, which is 75,000 homes, depends where they are, 75 to 100,000 homes, need about 100 megawatts of power generation to stay, stay lit. You can do that with wind turbines, and as long as the wind's blowing, they'll produce the necessary uh, power. And you need to about 100 square miles of, of land to distribute the wind turbines in. So you, and you need tens of thousands of tons of steel, uh, fiberglass, plastic, copper, uh, concrete, to build those turbines, each one of them the size of the Washington Monument. So you're going to have something in the order of uh, 30 or 40 Washington Monument-sized wind turbines uh, spread out over, you know, it'll feel like it's going to the horizon, 100 square miles. Or you can um, build a 100-megawatt gas-fired, natural gas-fired turbine, which fits inside about the footprint of a residential house, and that's about how big they are, inside of a building about the size of maybe a, a barn on a farm. 
and that's and the gas pipe to is buried, and that's it. That's all you'll see. The quantity of materials, so that the land footprint is a house versus 100 square miles, pretty big difference in land footprint. It, material footprint, uh, you go up roughly 1,000% in all the primary materials needed to manufacture the wind turbines versus the gas turbine. If you count just the critical minerals, copper, steel, uh, rare earth elements, molybdenum, and those things, you go up somewhere from 500 to 5,000% more materials required to deliver the same amount of energy. So you use more land and use more materials, you use more minerals, all of which have to come from somewhere. You have to use the land somewhere and all of which have to be mined somewhere, processed somewhere. And then, this is the critical point, this misnomer renewable energy misses the fact that there's no such thing. The machines wear out. All machines wear out, including wind turbines and solar panels. When they wear out, you have to replace them. Since everything wears out, in effect, nothing's renewable. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complete misnomer. It's a complete misdirection. The fact that the wind blows because we have nothing to do with it is no different than the fact oil exists because we have nothing to do with the that either. The wind don't blow and the sun don't shine. <laughs> and we have Texas from last year where they had a blackout. Yeah. Uh, I want to put up this other chart. Bring our favorite genius, Bill Gates, yeah. titled <laughs> Bring Math to the Problem. Yeah, it's a good line. It's a great line, but actually, <laughs> yeah. he did, you know, yeah. this is a good example where you can be a genius in one field and an idiot in another. <laughs> and I, it, I, I, I would, I'll give him more credit than that, but because I have, I'm biased, right? My first book, he, um, energy. He liked your book. He liked the book and praised it. He saw it. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I, well, you're compromised. I, I'm compromised now. Also, <laughs> what was also, the name of that first it, book? At the bottom as well. Okay. Uh, it was about energy, and we forecast the, sort of the state of the world as it as it When would did you be. write it? I, 20 years ago. And, and uh, how did the forecast come out? Uh, well, you know, it sounds sort of uh, like I'm going to dive you, deep you can, in the lake. You can be self-serving. Yeah, dive deep in the lake hubris, but uh, we, <laughs> we were right about everything. Let's just put it that way. So uh, we, was, called, we called, that was, that was the era of peak oil supply. We we're going to run out of oil, run out of gas, run out of everything. I mean, well, Bill was, Gates is uh, a guy who's easy not to like, though. He's well, arrogant. it's true of most billionaires. That's true. That's, that's I, I, don't mean, I don't mean mean to billionaires. So, but, so, but if, <laughs> if we took this red chart down to its conclusion, we'd end up with about half the country covered with solar and wind fields? Yeah, so, exactly. So the land, literally, literally, literally half the right. land mass. The land to, if you were to try to provide all the energy <clears throat> America needs using just wind and solar, the physical land area would have to occupy pretty close to half the continent of the United States. And you know, you think about that, say, well, does that matter? Well, yeah, I sort of think it matters. I mean, yeah. that's my opinion, but there are people who don't. Uh, who? But, but, but the, the, the green advocates who keep saying we have to have 100% wind and solar. But if you've got the whole thing covered with, with, with mirrors, I mean, what's being Well, green? you're not going to be all covered with them because you're going to have the wind turbines are spaced. I mean, if they... If but they kill billions of birds a year. Well, you know, it's birds. I mean, the, I the, guess the, 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 blades, <laughs> the blades are non... They don't... They, the they non last forever. Non-renewable plastic. And, uh, you know, remember when the wind turbines were first built uh, in California, when they, this era began 20 years ago, we'll give the Audubon Society credit for, they opposed them and called them a Condor Cuisinars. <laughs> they, they, Audubon Society called the wind turbines Condor Cuisinars because oh, they gosh. were worried about the condors being, <laughs> being whacked by the wind turbine blades. I, well, they were, I, actually. I, I like wind turbines. I like solar panels. I like electric cars. I like, I mean, it's just, just it's wired into me. I like machines. 
But I also like reality. And the problem is when you invent uh, cheaper ways to make energy, society naturally goes to it, not complicated. For certain applications in certain parts of the country and the world, wind and solar can be cheaper than building a next gas plant or coal plant or hydro dam. But not universally the case. Do you want to talk about this chart? You know, it's one of my favorite charts, too. <laughs> <laughs> this, I want to talk about it. You, talk, you bring up physics of energy. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Edu <laughs> educate, educate. So everything, when I talk about the limits to what you can do in energy, I sort of redound to the physics of energy. You can't, you can't make batteries as, as useful as oil because it's locked into the physics of the materials. So they say, well, what do you mean? You, know, you just throw money at it. We have smart you know, tech guys. I mean, I'm a tech bull because, as you know, my book's a lot about computing and technology. Well, your PhD is in physics. Well, I don't have a PhD. I quit graduate school. If I was smart, I would have quit undergraduate school like Bill Gates, and then I could have been really, you know. You could have made some money. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But I stayed in, finished gra undergrad. I quit. I quit grad. I went to. I was working. I like to make stuff. So back to. Well, you're a very <laughs> successful polymath then. <laughs> well, I just it's never settled on one subject. That was the problem. So back to physics. Here's the here's the fact. Let's do the energy, and we'll do cars and airplanes because. People are obsessed with that. And it, you know, for good reason, cars and airplanes are a big deal. They use a lot of the world's energy and uh, for good reasons, because they produce something of value. The most valuable thing in the universe is the time that we have to live on Earth. It's irreplaceable. Almost no human being has li ever lived more than a million hours. So what is, what is so much of what history has been devoted to is making uh, our time available to do other things, which translates into speed and convenience, comforts. It always takes energy. Airplanes and cars consume energy, and they, they, they save something precious, our time. So anyway, how do we get there? Well, you have oil, which is at, at a fundamental level, just molecules that have energy potential in them. And I have lithiated chemicals, which have the fundamental physical chemistry that allows them to release their energy. And if I forget the batteries, forget engines, just start with the underlying physical chemistry of the materials, which is where one has to start, a pound of oil has 50-fold, not 5-fold, not 5%, 50-fold more energy in it than a pound of lithiated chemicals. 50-fold, or in percentage terms, that's 5,000%. So I have 5,000% more energy per pound in a pound of hydrocarbons than I have a pound of lithiated chemicals. Okay, I have to, what would you, which would you want to use if you're making an airplane or a car? You, you'd start with a thing that has high energy density because when you make a vehicle, your goal is to carry cargo or people not fuel. You don't want a thousand pound, a bunch of thousand right. pounds batteries in your in you, your airplane. You could have in cars. It'd be fine. There'll <clears> be millions <throat> and millions more electric cars because there are so many uses for cars, so many niches. I have no doubt about that. But will they replace all cars? In with the physics that we have today and the batteries we know we can make today, no. So this chart, though, you've got an energy density in biophysics. We've got elephants up there yeah. out in the yeah. out there in the upper right quadrant what is explain this to me <laughs> so that i use that one because and who's this nice lady well, on i know the, on this, the this is this was the this was a, <clears throat> a screenshot from the 1950s uh, cheesy science fiction movies where radiation was going to make uh, everything become mutated and big you know the giant ants and giant spiders and of course the favorite movies of the was the was the rampage of the giant woman so uh, this is it this is it it was uh, i think it was called the attack of the something you know Giant woman. It was, Giant it was woman. Goofy, yeah. goofy title. <laughs> uh, goofy movie. I, I show that because there's this 
There was also them, which is about giant ants. There was, it was giant spiders. The yeah. Radiation was going to mutate everything and make everything big and horrible, and it was a favorite theme in science fiction. The point of this is just like the, the King Kong movies of today, these giant uh, creatures, they can't exist. It doesn't matter. They, they can't exist because the physics doesn't permit it. I mean, the, the, so what, what this graph shows you is that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between the size of something, in this case, biological size of something, and the energy it, it has associated with it so you just, it's a straight line. Or put differently, you, you can't make something the size of an elephant or 10 times that size, like the giant woman, but use the energy that would be associated with something that was much smaller. You just can't do it. it. Can't happen in the universe we live in. Since you need energy to fuel everything, it just can't exist. It just won't exist. In comic books, it exists. In Hollywood's imaginations, they exist. But it can't exist in the universe we live in. Same thing as saying that can a battery ever get as good as an internal combustion engine? And in, the, and in a lot of our environmental uh, study think tanks. Well, yeah. <laughs> we have, I, you know, I've used the line that uh, people believe in unobtainium. They want all these perfect <laughs> attributes. Which element is that? that unobtainium. Unobtainium. It's, it's, I want it to have high energy density. I want it to weigh nothing. I want it to cost me nothing getting out of the earth. And I want it to be free. <laughs> well, okay. That's good. I want to get to the let's 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 turn. This is the Bill Walton show. I'm talking here with the brilliant Mark Mills about uh, everything. And but he's written <laughs> a great much. book on the cloud and about how that really is such a such a huge uh, um, exciting thing for our future. But most of us don't understand it. Yeah. And don't understand what the implications are. And we've got a chart here which shows the change of rate of information brought about by the cloud. But before getting to the chart, let's just describe what, uh, why this is the, the basis for your book and why this, yeah. is, this is the key to the kingdom. Well, you know, it, it's tough, always tough to pick a title for a book because it can misdirect people. And the reason we ended up arguing and talking about starting with the cloud revolution is because it is a revolution, but we have to first understand what the cloud is. Let me tell you what it isn't. The cloud is as different from the internet as the internet was different from telephony. And we all know why the internet was important and different from telephony. It provided, you know, you got mail of AOL days, which was very different, uh, led to a very different trajectory than just the telephone. Uh, but it, it, the internet used the telephone networks initially. That's what it used. It used the exact same networks built on it. The cloud is not a communications medium. It uses communications medium. It uses the internet. The cloud is a combination of communications that are wired and wireless. So the wireless revolution, the smartphone again, was a big deal because it created networks of unprecedented flexibility and length that have never existed. We, we connect people with networks, we lay cables, but once we went wireless, the magnitude of the networks self-evidently changed. It went from millions of homes to billions of people and now to billions of machines, all wirelessly connected. So we have networks and we have computing in the middle the data centers, which is what they're called. Well, the data centers, as I understand, there are about 500 of them now. There are thousands of data centers in the world. But there the big are, ones are like a million square feet, the, bigger the than so, a shopping yeah, mall. Right, the the so-called hyperscale data centers. Okay, which hyperscale. Are, which are far bigger than shopping malls, look like warehouses, millions of square feet. It, one square foot of a data center like that has more computing power than the whole world had in the early 1980s. So you have this massive expansion of an infrastructure a physical infrastructure, so it's not invisible. We just don't, the fact that we don't see it doesn't mean it's a, it's not virtual. So the cloud is 
in a physical sense, the network of devices that we, we have, you know, our, our, our smartphones or things like that, laptops, tablets, networks that connect us and them to the cloud, the, to the data centers. And then we have computers that are, Google famously, engineers famously relabeled these giant data centers as warehouse scale computers. Essentially a computer the size of a warehouse, which there are thousands, and the hyperscale ones are the equivalent of the, the Burj Khalifa, right? They're, they're like skyscrapers, skyscraper equivalent, in which there's far more of them than there are skyscrapers in the world. So you have this Empire space. State Building was about 2 million square feet and, and a data, one and, of these. And we have about... hundreds of data centers with millions okay. of square feet, yeah. exactly. So think, but think of it in terms of what it, what it does, what it is, why it's different than the internet. I'm not sending mail. Everybody that, that does Uber or DoorDash or um, Airbnb, uh, mapping, these are, not, these are not communications functions. As I say it, it's obvious. What you've, what you've done is you've asked a remote computer to, to do some processing, give you some advice, not instructions, but advice, right? So it's not just a question. I, and, and relate counterparties and look at all kinds of variables to say, well, this counterparty should be, uh, would probably like this one, whether that's a place you're renting, whether it's a car you'd like, ride you'd like to have, whether it's a financial transaction. That activity is what the cloud does. It's not just storing information like cat videos or fun YouTubes of spot the dog, right? It's doing processing, but it's not just doing computation. It's giving advice. It's giving ideas. It's helping in research. So when we think about Zoom as a communications medium, which has become very common, or YouTube as a way to broadcast, that's a communications medium, and it's very powerful for that because it's a cheap way to do it. But that's the least of it because what we're doing with, by disintermediating old businesses, whether it's in finance, the hot thing is fintech, right? Also true in healthcare. I mean, already, well, the one silver lining, there's a few silver linings in the great lockdowns, is we finally got rid of the r ridiculous prohibition where you couldn't talk to your doctor, get medical advice or prescription in a video call. Oh, what a dumb restriction, right? We know why the restriction was there in terms of licensing and safety, but we've long ago solved those problems. That's been wiped out by, by the great lockdowns. That's just the beginning of finding and improving the efficacy with which you can get access to expert advice of all kinds and get access to doing new kinds of things, like, you know, education and training. Remember when MOOCs started, everybody was all excited. They said that it was the end of universities, the massive online courses. It's not the end of universities. The, the cloud and online education is actually an amplifier for education, not the end of it. Well, how does this, how does this get us out of what, we talk, what I call the new normal, where we're basically right. just being more efficient at ordering a ride or food sure. or, yeah. or you know, doing things we're already doing? How does, this, how does this free up time? How does this make us more productive? So the, the essence of productivity is, is easy to state because it, it's an it's economics 101. You want fewer inputs less time, especially, less labor, and fewer materials to get the same or better output. Productivity is how wealth is expanded. Without productivity, there's no wealth expansion. Until, until you can do things more productively, the only way people became richer was to steal other people's stuff. They stole their land, they stole their goods, they stole their people and enslaved them. That's how wealth was created to a few. If you expand the productivity- Everything was zero sum until about zero sum. 1750. 1500, you could argue that the Middle Ages, there was a huge wealth expansion because of, uh, again, uh, the same kind of revolution we're facing today. It was the machine age, the first machine age, yeah. camshaft, water wheels, windmills to grind things. 
and the, it was the uh, dawn of the information revolution, the first information revolution. We understand processes. So that created productivity. England became the, uh, the epicenter of wealth because it was the first industrial revolution was at that time. So it created more wealth for more people. More wealth, of course, is how we get, we buy time. Mm -hmm. if, let's put this in energy terms. Uh, time is measured in dollars. That's how human beings have always done it since before the, be, before the, uh, the age of the invention of money in, in, in uh, prehistory. We measure it in dollars. So for all of human history, until the Industrial Revolution, which brought productivity fueled by hydrocarbons, between 70 and 90% of every economy's GDP was associated with acquiring food and fuel. Hmm. That's what you, that's to survive. The other 20 to 30 percent, you could do other stuff like educate or entertain or travel or, you know, make your life more comfortable or interesting. Now, now globally, for now, until we, we foolishly reverse it, about 15 percent, 15, one, five percent of the GDP is tied up with food and fuel. Hmm. So that freed up all the rest of the economy, freed up our time to do other things, which is why we have more literacy, which is why we have more comforts, which is why we have, why we have more healthcare. It comes from wealth. So back to your question, how does the cloud give us productivity? Okay, let's just do a, simple, a very simple example. Any one of us imagine what, how much of your time it took pre-DoorDash to get food that way, let's just say, or pre-Uber to get a, a ride, or pre-Airbnb to find something to rent. Or the, at the dawn of this concept, I mean, the airlines had to do this. They were forced to do it because of the complexity of their system. They began, they pioneered the use of computing to take friction out of how you could coordinate all these complex relationships of flying A, person A to per place B and have the right pilot. All these complexities take time. They're hard to do. Computing makes it happen quickly, effortlessly, without friction. And the more we do that, the more we increase the velocity of those things, things that have to be done to affect something. L let's use a, a, a hyper-specific examples in the news a lot that the cloud and what's going on now will alleviate supply chains. We've rediscovered a supply chain. Well, what a shock, right? Alexander the Great was, understood supply chains. One of the, his historians would, would tell, tell you and I both, one of the reasons he was so successful was because he figured out how to have a material supply chain to his front line. Yeah, all the way to India. Supply chains matter, they've always mattered. But the thing about supply chains is they're always complicated. There's so many elements to it, and the more global we are, and we are more global, the more people there are, and the more products there are, the more kinds of services there are, and of course we have hundreds of services that never existed before, we have thousands of products that never existed before, all of them are complex. Automobile used to be made from like six different kinds of things. Now, by things, I don't mean components. It was made from rubber, steel, copper, not much. You could count mm -hmm. on two hands the materials that went into a car. Now, something like 800 different kinds of materials go into a car. Not which, just, which is why we can't fix them. Which is why, oh, it's also why they last so long. If you, okay. We're both of an age. Well, that's true. I, I remember yeah, tuning I, a car up pretty I had a lot frequently. Of cars. I spent a lot of time wiring the muffler back onto it. Exactly. <laughs> Musclers don't fall off very often anymore. That's the materials revolution. Spark plugs last 100,000 miles instead of being replaced every 10. That's the materials revolution. But back to the, the productivity. I remember, I remember doing my old car on the Bronx Expressway in New York. <laughs> that, was, that was exciting. Well, I've, I've, I've had to repair cars in Canadian winters with, with taking your gloves off, trying to make the thing yeah, the, the good start. old days. It was, I t I'll take the complexity for the, uh, if it buys me reliability, which is what it's not. If you have the time, I'd like to do a bonus segment here because sure. we're, we, I, 
I've got about as usual. I've got about five percent of stuff I want to cover with you. But I, this is Bill. This is Bill Walton's show. I'm talking with Mark Mills. We're talking about the cloud and all the exciting things it can do for us. But I want to ask the question you don't really cover in the book, and I just want, I want to speculate here. Are we a lot more vulnerable because all of our information is up there, yeah. and we've got <clears throat> all these big data centers, and yep. we live in a world with a political class and an aggressive China and people who want to be disruptive. Yeah. And I've had some people on, Peter Pry came on talking about EMP mm -hmm. and the vulnerability we have. It seems like the more we put in the cloud, the more we lose control of our own information and, and our day-to-day, -day, we lose control of our, our personal security. Um, and we've seen with social media companies, we become more susceptible to censorship. Yeah. I mean, it seems yeah. like there's a dark side to it yeah. as well. Yeah, the yin and yang, the yin and yang of uh, technologies always been there. Yeah. So well, let's, I want to let's, it, let's explore it, that. It, and it's not, and I'm not naive about <clears> it, and I don't, I don't entirely ignore it in the book. I think, I, I, in fact, not to be facetious, the, you know, probably the first piece of technology ever invented by humans. Humans are wired to invent stuff. Was a sharpened stick to get food, right? Well, it was also used for other things, right? Yeah, you it, bet. It, it, <laughs> so that's people. So uh, I, while I'm, uh, I'm an inveterate optimist in the sense of, particularly about the United States, uh, I do begin my book pointing out that it's possible to Sovietize an economy. We know that because the Soviets did that to their economy. In the 20th century's gain in wealth and productivity uh, that was enjoyed by America, they didn't, they didn't come, Russian people didn't come close to getting the same benefits. So politics matters. Politics matters enormously. We can we can destroy growth. Governments can destroy growth, inhibit growth. Uh, it, it's not it's not it's not nothing. What I I guess I would say technology can't fix stupid. Uh, I mean, it just, and, it, and, and you make an important point of the book that the future is what we believe it will be. Mm. Well, that's and so setting yes, expectations exactly. and providing leadership exactly. as to the potential for the future which is utterly what we don't have in today's leadership, which is, right. which is gloom and, uh, and doom. Yep. Well, so again, I'll quote Joel Moikier, <clears throat> the economist at Northwestern, who's, again, I'll say again, he's a Nobel class economist, brilliant, brilliant guy, written some amazing stuff. But what he, what he said, his first line in one of his most recent books was, uh, economic growth depends, and I'm, I'm close to the exact quote, Econo economic growth depends more on what people believe than most economists care to admit hmm. now not believe naively well, what do you mean amplify you have, if you don't feel optimistic about the future if you don't believe and by that he didn't mean i believe i can fly like a bird jump off a cliff he wasn't he was talking about belief in 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 uh, a better future if people are optimistic about conquering problems there are always problems both environmental social physical mechanical risks geopolitics but if you're not optimistic at some level about it uh, society's ability to conquer these problems is diminished or, or even destroyed. So I think that's true. I think the point of my book was to paint a picture of what's been invented that promises remarkable advances in workplace, healthcare, uh, our productivity, wealth expansion. All the things that we, we talk and care about have solutions, not perfect. So but back to your point on cybersecurity and loss of our personal controls. So yeah, of course, the the social social media, the social tech giants have taken control of the news business. So it's not the first time we've struggled with the issue of of news, news fairness, news accuracy. Uh, we've been through this battle before. It's an important one to fight and get right. I'm not naive about the the dangers of a uh, 
uh, of, a, of an, an environment where people can't speak freely. But I think that's true for a lot of Americans. We're having that fight now to resolve the mechanics of who gets to say what, where, and when. Uh, I'm very optimistic about how we'll, we'll work it out, but I'm not naive that it'll take some fighting to get worked out properly. Uh, just as, again, a calibration point, 1920s. I picked up the Roaring the Roy 20s fall. There were 20,000. Hey, you've got a good chapter in the 20s yeah. about how there was that the boom, but there right. was also a lot of darkness. A lot of dark stuff. And there were 20,000 newspapers <clears throat> in the United States then. Many of them published three times a day. And that's the dawn of yellow journalism. How would you get eyeballs, so to speak, at that time? Well, same thing we call clickbait today. They made news up. Fake news. Fake news. It was fake news then. Literally made up news. And, of course, all, all kinds of negative fallouts from that, as well as positive in the sense that there were more, there was more information in the flow. On security, the reason I'm optimistic that we'll have more control over our privacy and more control over security is because those features of security are information features. Now, it's extremely difficult to provide security physically. If it's an army, it still requires guns and boots on the ground. It just does, and explosives. People don't like that. It requires cops. I mean, people may not like that. Those things have never changed. They've never changed, and they're no easier now than they were in 1920s when we had massive race riots. But information security can be uh, improved with other information tools, and information tools get better at exponential rates. Nothing else does. So the, the kinds of solutions to security, which is the word blockchain, which you've heard, the, this class of uh, network offers a security potential that really is unprecedented information domain. So I'm very optimistic that we can see a near future where you're going to feel a lot more comfortable about your personal information, your control of it, and the transparency. But it still will require a sensible approach on regulation and governance. If we do it in a heavy-handed way, governments are never good at, at setting frameworks for industries when they're heavy-handed. Well, I'll use an example again from history, pre-World War I. This was the dawn of the Interstate Commerce Commission. It was created to regulate the railroads because they were getting too big, too powerful. There were monopolies, right? They, they changed the world. The, 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 the transformation from agrarian to, to post-agrarian society is marked not by the car, but by the railroad mm -hmm. that changed the America. And those who brought it brought incredible benefits to people, lower-cost transportation, lower-cost food, lower-cost materials. It, it was all to the benefit of the consumer because it that they didn't do it for the consumer in that sense, but it all benefited consumers. And yet they got big, and we wanted to break them up and control them the Interstate Commerce Commission. That resulted in, in, in the demise in the railroad's efficacy, unfortunately, right before World War I, which caused the government to do what? Take over the railroads and make them even worse. That worked out really well. Well, <laughs> exactly. So that's the, we're, we're, we're at that point again where we have that risk where the government would say, you know what, I'll run Facebook and Google. I, this, we aren't there yet. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that at all. And do you no. want to break them up? Breaking up is probably not the right word. I mean, it's hard to agree with Mark Zuckerberg, but his advertisements about getting the regulations right for, for news and social media, it's right about that, right? The, the detail is what, what does that mean? Uh, the size is not the problem. It's, as you and I both know, it's your ability to actually have a voice and not be blocked by somebody who's a different opinion. Well, I think about that is that I don't think breaking them up is even remotely a good idea because you're going to instill up with the same kind of dynamics sure. because of who would be running them. Yes. It's almost better to keep them bigger and watch them. 
well, and have some sensible the, regulation, but then you ask the question, okay, who are going to be those sensible this is regulators? The problem. Now you're on the slippery slope towards where we, how we got Ma Bell. So yeah. we end up with Ma Bell because we believed that communications was very important. So we anointed a single operator for the whole country, yeah. and we regulated them. They're okay. I mean, there are people who were pretty, pretty happy with that, but it stifled innovation for sure until they were deregulated. Uh, we we uh, didn't get yeah. the innovation. One last question, then we got to get get out of this because you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna come back. We oh, got we got more to, to. we got more to cover. Uh, the external threats, China. Yeah, I worry about yeah. them disrupting our cloud. Yeah, and you know I mentioned EMP. I mean, wh- how vulnerable are we to somebody just knocking out a bunch of these data centers and all of a sudden we lose access to all this great information? Well, the EMP won't knock out the data centers in the sense that you're talking about. It can knock out the power with keeps okay. them lit. And uh, all data centers of consequence have backup power. L- usually diesel generators, by the way, back to hydrocarbons. <laughs> like <laughs> Oil is easy to store. Generators are cheap and powerful. So you keep them surrounded by lots of big diesel generators. <laughs> An inconvenient fact, let's just call it. I'm worried about China, too. But I, my worry uh, in the... Sh- I'll just do short-term and long-term quickly. In short-term, of course, there was a serious competitor in every sense, and they're a serious threat in other senses. Uh, we, we can't be naive about their, pol- their, their political aspirations. They're very different than ours. It's, it's, I'm not talking about the Chinese people. I've been to a dozen cities in China. I like Chinese people. I've met lots, hundreds of Chinese engineers and dozens of the companies. That's, we're talking about the politics, the government. Chinese Communist Party. Chinese Communist Party. They have different goals than we do. Uh, but the Chinese have a problem. They have, and it's, not, it's, it's a problem that means that I think the 21st century is America's century, not theirs. And the problem is, is just two things. Demographics. 2020 was the year that their, their growth rates went negative. Not because of COVID, but because of demographics. Population growth. Population growth is going negative. So yeah, one-child policy, et cetera. We'll be a, a, the United States will be a country of about six or 800 million people in, in 30 or 40 years, and there'll be a country of about a billion change. It'll be smaller and we'll be bigger. And more important than the demographics, we'll be a younger country than them. Demographically, that's profoundly important. Economically, they're getting older, and we're not getting older at the same rate. America is, set aside whether, whether we should have more or less immigration, illegally or legally. Obviously, I, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant Canadian. I vote for legal. But I like immigration because it's always infused America. We have immigration and birth rates, the combination, which are very good for our country. And the Chinese system, the Communist Party, is very nervous about entrepreneurs who feel free to do what they want. They really are. They've just clamped down recently. You do not get next generation innovation in that kind of environment. I'd say that's the you third just, big factor. What Xi is doing is really killing the golden goose. He, he is. So what he's counting on is inertia from using yesterday's technologies to make stuff for America, like solar panels and cheap microprocessors. We make the expensive ones, they make the cheap ones. But that trade gives him money and gives him revenue, but he's not, he, he's not creating the seed corn for the future. In fact, as I document in my book, and as you know, I have hundreds of citations, I make the point, and I think it's correct, not only are the leading universities and innovators in the research domain dominantly in America, but the, the leading inventions, majority of new things being invented, things like bioelectronics and next-generation therapeutics and pharmaceuticals, next-generation uh, robotics and materials, they're being invented in the United States. We, we utterly dominate the world in the long-term stuff 
in, in the long term, guess what? <laughs> the long term stuff matters. So for the 21st century, I think China's a which problem. Is, which getting, getting back to the thesis of your book is that, or one of the theses is that it's the stuff that's been recently invented that's also the leading edge that converges to create the, create the tremendous uh, growth, and they're not doing that. They're, they're doing very little of it. Okay. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. We've been, uh, I've been talking with Mark Mills, who's written a terrific book, The Cloud Revolution, and it's much, much more than that. It gets into all sorts of aspects of uh, work life and, and uh, history and future, and it's just a, it's a treasure trove of uh, very interesting uh, stuff. And I'm really thank, thank, you. I, I thank you for writing it. It well, had to be prodigious to pull this together. Thank you for promoting it. Well, <laughs> well you write a book, you want somebody to pay attention. <laughs> well, I'm paying, we're paying attention. I hope you all are paying attention, too. Anyway, thanks for joining. Thanks, Mark. Thank and, you, uh, We'll see you again next time. Of course, you can find us on the BillWaltonShow.com, and also we're on uh, CPAC now on every Monday night. And uh, you also find my radio gig on China with Frank Gaffney on uh, on China's on uh, Frank Gaffney's radio station on on Mondays as well. Uh, so thanks for joining, and uh, Mark, get you back again soon. Thank you. Use the evil Amazon machine to buy my book. Oh yeah, Revolution. it's on Amazon. <laughs> it's already got it's already got five star ratings. That's right, good. And it's 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 very highly rated. So a lot of people agree with us. That's good. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mark. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.